I think the Lord may answer our prayer as the Holy Spirit just filled this room via those ducks in the ceiling. That was impressive. And the timing on that, way to go band, to like perfectly time that crescendo. Oh, that was awesome. All right, we have uh, yet another special day in the life of Midtown Creve Hall uh, today as we get to baptize another child into our fellowship. Uh, if you remember when we, you know, we just finished this Acts series, and as we finished that, one of the, the resounding crescendos that has come up over and over again in the sermons in Acts is this, oh yeah, hey, you can sit down there. <laughs> Sorry. I was going to invite everybody up to be a part of the baptism, so I was just getting you ready. Uh, sorry about that, guys. So, yeah, very first sermon, Peter preaches, and everyone's cut to the core, and they're like, what do we do? I'm not sure how to handle this great news that I've just heard. And Peter responds, repent and be baptized, all of you. But, and this promise is not only for you, this promise is for your children. And so what we're about to do is acknowledge that the same promise that all of us are singing about today, the same promise that Garrett and Katie have entrusted their hearts to the Lord, that that same way that they entrusted their hearts to the Lord by grace through faith is the very same way that Collins and Emmy Ruth and every other child will have the opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus for themselves. So we're going to mark that today, both uh, the reality of that uh, and the truth and the factual nature of that. So Garrett, Katie, Emmy Ruth, Collins, and friends, and family, and elders, and small group members, and now the entire church can go ahead and get up and come up front. Come on. Hey, girl. All right, the practice run of me holding you, Collins, didn't go so well. So we'll see how this one goes. But not yet. I'll let your dad hang with you for a minute. All right, as everybody makes their way up, oh, this is so fun. Uh, as everybody makes their way up, let me just remind you of this. Baptism is a, a picture of salvation. Ooh, careful. That was a really great illustration, though. Because here's, here's what's happening right now. I'm sure, day that one, that I'm sure that one day Collins might be a great triathlete, like her dad, right? I'm sure there'll be a day where she will run and jump and skip and have all of this fun all on her own. But today, as smiley as you are, you can't take care of yourself. The reality of how Collins it comes to this water today is the reality that each one of us come to the Lord with nothing. Each one of us comes to the Lord like a child, helpless, needy, vulnerable, wandering. That is how we come, and he comes and finds us in that reality. And the, the image, <clears throat> excuse me, that's being portrayed in this water that I don't know if you can see that behind the candles here, is that there is a washing that we can't clean ourselves up enough to make happen. That for the Lord to accept us, that washing has to come from him in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in the same way that the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost, so this is an image of the Spirit coming down on this child. And what we're 
what we're imaging today is not that this water is saving Collins here and now. But what we are imaging is that that reality, even though as much as she might like it and as excited as she might be, the, the image that we're portraying today is that that same way that both of her parents have come to know Jesus, that same narrow gate is open for Collins and Emmy Ruth, wherever she may be. Okay. Um, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask y'all three vows. I'm going to ask y'all one vow because this is a collective reality. We are together as the members of Midtown Creek Hall covenanting to say we will help point this child to Jesus in the same way uh, that we did Emmy Ruth when she was baptized a little over a year ago. Okay, so here we go. Vow number one for y'all, you can respond by saying yes. Do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you claim God's covenant promise in her behalf? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for her salvation as you do your own? Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before her a godly example, that you will pray with and for her, that you will teach her the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring her up in the nature, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord to you. And now to you, members of Midtown Creef Hall, do you collectively as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? Do you? Wonderful. All right, the time has come, little girl. Oh, hey, it's okay. Your dad is right there. I know there's fire, there's water. It's very scary. It's going to be okay. Uh, Garrett is the covenant head of your household. What is his child's full name? Collins Marie Daniel. Collins Marie Daniel. I baptize you in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. Can we pray? Father, we pray, uh, appealing to your Holy Spirit uh, and the power of divine grace that you would, here you go, uh, that, that there would not be a day that Collins does not know you and call you Lord and Savior. Lord Jesus, we pray uh, for her and Emmy Ruth both as Garrett and Katie raised them. Father, we pray uh, that there would be a deep sense of your nearness to them in their household, that, their, uh, that your grace would permeate their parenting, uh, that you would give them the, the wisdom to know how to say and what to say and when to say it as their children continue to grow up. But ultimately, we pray uh, that this little girl would know you, Lord Jesus. Uh, and that what is sig signified and sealed in this water would now come to pass in reality, that she, in the same way that she has been washed with water now, that she would be cleansed by your blood, uh, blotting out her sins, sending them as far as the east is from the west, that that would happen in her life through her parents, through this church, and through your spirit working inside of her. Do a great work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody, welcome the newest member. There she is. You did it. All right.
Um, let's see, I was supposed to say something. What was it? Oh, yeah, kids. You are dismissed. You may have already been dismissed, but if not, yep. Kids, you can head on out to Kids Men. And as the kids are filtering out, a movie recommendation. Uh, This is an often overlooked movie of the holidays that I would invite you all to go see. Kids both in the room uh, and even adults in the room. It didn't get a lot of love at the box office. It didn't get a lot of love on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, But if you've heard of the movie Rise of the Guardians, anybody? Come on, let's go. Let's go. We got to come on. Okay. Rise of the Guardians, go with me. What? What? Was that a yay or a nay? Are you happy about it? Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, so the thing about Rise of the Guardians is you can watch it at any holiday, and it always applies. Like you can watch it at Halloween. You can watch it at Easter. You can watch it at Christmas because it takes every one of those holiday characters and puts them all in one movie together. You got Santa, you got the Easter Bunny, you got Sandman, uh, you got the Tooth Fairy, and then Jack Frost. I'm not sure why he's in there. I'm not even sure he has to do anything with holidays. But um, And they all team up and they form this task force, this guardianship over the children of the world against this evil ne'er-do-well named Pitch Black otherwise known as the Boogeyman. The Boogeyman has been haunting children's dreams, and as he does, he is slowly breaking their belief down. He's breaking their joy down. He's breaking their hope, their excitement, their joy and engagement if, with all of the fun of these seasons. And uh, there's a scene where they're, they're at Santa's HQ, and there's this big, giant, golden metal globe and it's like slowly spinning like this. And each child and their belief uh, and their excitement and love and joy over the season is represented by a little light. And then as the boogeyman begins his plight over the world, you see this sort of all the little lights begin to go out one by one by one. And, uh, and then, of course, stop it. Uh, Of course, the goal of the Guardians then is to restore the joy and goodness and reality of what these holidays represent to these kids, to bring their joy back, to bring their belief back, to bring their excitement back. This is where Isaiah finds himself. Isaiah finds himself in a world that is sad and scared and joyless. They've lost their faith. They've lost their belief. And there there literally is a darkness that has covered the land. Not a physical darkness, but a, a spiritual one. And the passage that we're about to jump into tells you the good news. But I want to tell you the bad news first because the bad news won't, or the good news won't have any punch if I don't tell you the bad news first. Isaiah 8 the very last two verses going into what we're about to read says this. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and against their God. And they'll turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick 
we may not have to look far to find the darkness in our own lives. Here's the good news, though. I'm not sure who's supposed to come read, but somebody is going to come tell us some good news. Thank you, Cat Shivey. Okay, this is Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, God. So do you, do you feel the freight and the weight of the images, the metaphor that's being drawn on here? That coming out of chapter 8 is describing this like, blech, darkness, difficulty, struggle, stress. And that's how we're coming in this morning. Many of us in many different ways all are carrying both inside of us and in the world and in the people and in the places that we love, darkness. And yet there is this past tense promise. You notice that in verse one. It begins past tense. There will be no more gloom for those who were in anguish. It flips from present to past tense real quick. And so it's saying something has happened. Light is dawning. Good things are coming and have already come. Uh, So we're going to just riff for a little bit on that image of darkness and light and how this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace breaks in with light. So we're going to do that in three ways this morning. First, the source of light. Second, the exposure of light. Third, the kingdom of light. So Bible trivia question, the source of light. On day three, flip back to Genesis 1. Day three happens. God creates plants. Okay? How do plants grow? Photosynthesis. How does photosynthesis happen? Sun. There you go. Okay, day four, God creates the sun. Mm -mm. Can we trust it? 
how did plants grow without the sun? Okay, ponder on that. Now, back up a couple of verses. On day one, what does God create? Let there be light. And it was good. Light comes before sun. The sun is a delegate. It is given the responsibility to hold light for a time. But if you trace the image of light all the way from the beginning of the Bible to the end, what we find at the end in Revelation 21, and the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Light does not ultimately originate in the sun. It originates in the Lord. It is part of who he is. He is light. Many times when you see God break in to the story of human history, he breaks in in these images of light. And so it would make sense then if if part of the nature of who God is, is he is light. And out of light comes life then to separate ourselves, to walk away from that light is like from Adam and Eve all the way till now, walking away from the the greenhouse of the Garden of Eden and walking into the weirdness of the 430 darkness of Nashville. It is so strange. I am not used to it yet. And so there is the gloom of anguish then, verse 1, is what that experience of walking away from the Lord and into darkness feels like. Uh, Those two words, gloom and anguish, put together something of a definition like this. The sadness and distress that comes from undergoing hardship or trouble. Have you been sad or troubled this week about hard stuff in your life? We don't have to look very far. Darkness is everywhere. And our response to that darkness is this burdensome sense of this is not right. We know that internally. This is not what I was made for. That's why we hate it so much. That's why we want to to try to cope with it or make it go away or shine a flashlight real quick to make the darkness dispel. I was telling Sarah earlier this week, it is really difficult in the everydayness of life to square the reality of who God is with the difficulty that I find every moment of every day. Am I the only one that that finds it hard to see light in the normal everyday stuff when it just feels a lot more like blech, dark, difficult? And if if you look back at those two verses leading into chapter 9, there's this image that they will look to the earth and then they'll turn their faces upward. And that's not a turning your face upward to the Lord. That's like a, this world is pointless, meaningless, dark. I'm looking around everywhere. I'm looking to the earth to find something light, to find something bright, to find something that satisfies, to find something that brings joy. And so they were, they were not wanting to trust the Lord anymore and instead looking to fortune tellers, 
looking to people who could talk to the dead, looking to, to those who could sort of rub a magic ball and tell them where they should go and what they should do because following the Lord is just too hard. And so they're looking to the earth for some other guidance, some other power, and they can't find it. But looking to the world to solve its own problems is like asking Collins to make a steak dinner when she's hungry. We can't do it. It's not what the created world was made to do, save itself. And yet that's what we ask the created world to do in all kinds of ways all the time. And so we ask our jobs, save me. Save me from that hopelessness of desire to have meaning and purpose and doing something with my life. Or I look to food to solve this ache of comfort that I so long for and I just can't find. Uh, or I look to my relationships to solve this ache of loneliness that constantly sits on my heart and chirps in my ear. You're alone. Nobody cares. There is a source of light. We have walked away from that light. And the first thing that light does, look at verse 2, the people who have walked in darkness have now seen a great light. What happens when you're in a really dark room like in a movie theater, and then you go out and it's like the middle of the day in the summer. And there's that sense of you can't quite see yet. Everything's kind of splotchy. Your pupils are still dilating. Uh, I heard an interview with Chip Dodd recently who wrote the book, The Voice of the Heart. And he said this. He said, you know that not even the closest marriage can you find a fix for your loneliness. That even in the closest best friend, closest marriage, closest relationship, closest parent-child, whatever that relationship is, there will still be this chirping sense of you are alone. Where does that come from? Why is that there? He then goes on to say, in fact, every one of these longings can be a gift. Because that longing then points to there is something that I am made for to satisfy me that I am not finding. And the goodness of that is it can then propel you into relationship. It can propel you into relationship with the Lord. It can propel you into relationship with other people in healthy ways. All of those places that initially seem like darkness, when light gets shown on them, the reality can be exposed of I, without the Lord, I am alone. Without the Lord, I have nobody who will always and forever care about me no matter what. I'm looking for unconditionality, and I can't find it anywhere here. And you could, you could extrapolate that to food, to job, to any of the other things that we've talked about or that you find in your own life. But the issue with walking in darkness is that you can't see and the funny thing about spiritual darkness is even more so, you can't tell you're in that place. Something has to expose that in you. Something has to turn the lights on in you. And in and of, of ourselves, we can't do it. Uh, at pastor's meeting this week, somebody brought up this image, and I thought it was good, so I'll steal it. Uh, he said, you know, when you're riding Space Mountain at Disney World, everybody been to Space Mountain, Disney, or Disneyland, either one? Uh, you know, you start out in this kind of bright, spacey-looking room, and you sit in the little 
the little seat, getting you ready for, for the ride that's about to come. And then all of a sudden the car, chunk, 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 goes forward and then just engulfs you in blackness. And you cannot see a thing. You can't see the drops that are coming. You can't see the twists. You can't see the turns. You can't see the loops. I can't remember if there's a loop. But you can't see anything. All you know is, I have no idea where I'm headed, and I can see some stars up here. Uh, I watched a, a YouTube video of Space Mountain getting stuck halfway through. And when they get stuck, they got to flip the lights on to figure out what's really going on with the thing. That's the reality of what it's like to walk in darkness. And we're being jerked this way and jerked that way. We don't know what drop is around the next corner. You don't know what drop is when you leave this room, what you might encounter in the next day or in the next week. We don't know what's coming. But when you flip the lights on, you begin to see, oh, there's a track that this is running on. There's a reality behind what I can see, taste, touch, and smell. And in fact, those aren't actual stars in the sky. I'm not actually in space. Those are little LED lights, and I'm in a big warehouse. When the light gets flipped on for us, we can see what's real, and we can see what's not. But we cannot flip these lights on for ourselves. Because there is something inside of our hearts that has to be flipped on in order for us to see what is true. So it makes perfect sense why the Gospel of John would open up with these words. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And then listen to the pronoun. He was in the world. So carrying that imagery all the way from Genesis 1, all the way through Isaiah 9, and all the way to John 1, and saying, that light that you have been longing for, that light that you were created for, that light that you have now walked away from, that light is coming to you. That light is breaking into your reality. That light is flipping on the light switch in your heart and in your mind to see there is so much more to this world. There is a God who created it. In the light of Jesus Christ, we see that there is a God and that he is the owner and ruler of all things, that there is a track to our life that has been sovereignly set up by him. And when the light gets flipped on inside of us, we also see all of the darkness inside of us. We see all the ways that we have walked away. We see the well-worn paths away from the Lord that we have walked. And more and more and more and more, we begin to despise those old ways of living and long and desire that we would walk in the light as he is in the light. But it doesn't only reveal God and reveal us, it also reveals this world that we live in. Because we live not only in darkness inside of us, we live in darkness that covers the whole globe. Verse 4, the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian pointing to this greater reality, talking about this physical oppression that was coming. There was a nation that was about to invade Israel and take them away into slavery. And in the same way, a, this nation of darkness has now invaded our world and taken this world captive into slavery. Ephesians 6 says it like this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood 
but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When we walked away from the Lord, evil, death, sin floods in. We're not only at war with ourselves, we're at war with the principalities and powers of darkness. We're at war with Satan himself. Does that feel like too big of a task for just any of us? And so carry on in that imagery. Prince of Peace. Just to pluck out one image of those four. We could talk about all four, but we don't have time. And so this Prince of Peace, that word for prince is the same word for war captain. This is not a, a prince who sits on his throne and strokes his cat and eats his grapes and sort of lets his peasants do whatever they want as long as he gets his money. This is a prince who goes to war. He mounts his steed. He goes towards the battle and not away from it. He does not send his people into the battle. He says, I will go to the battle for you. That's the kind of prince that is bringing our peace, our shalom, all of the, the yes, all of the goodness that we desire he has come to bring it. But how did he conquer? There's this weird little phrase right there, as on the days of Midian. Kind of random aside, you could probably read it and just shoot on by. But there's a really important spiritual truth that's happening in that verse. It's pointing back to a day in the past, in the days of the judges, when Israel is just sort, of, just sort of getting off its feet or getting up on its feet. The kingdom hasn't fully been established yet. That says there's no king in the land. Everyone's kind of doing what they want to do, but there is this remnant that God is building as he builds this kingdom. And there's this man named Gideon who leads this army against the, the powers that be around them. And he is after God's own heart. And Gideon has this giant army and then God says, no, that army's too big because if you win this battle, you're going to think it's you and not me. And so he says, I want you to send like 80% of them home. And so Gideon does, sends them home. Then he's got like, I think it's 1,000 men left. And he, God looks at those 1,000 men and he says, nope, still too many because you're still going to think it's you and not me if you win this battle. And, uh, and he says, I want you to go down to a river and Every one of the men who drinks water like a dog, that's who I want you to pick. That's going to be the warriors. And every, like, civilized, normal human being, I want you to send them home. Why? Because I want you to know the battle is the Lord's and not yours. And so this Prince of Peace is calling back to our minds this moment. And saying, as unlikely as that victory was, we have a war captain who who uh, killed sin and death by killing himself. Like, by bringing death to himself, he then conquered it for the world. And so, as sin and death are conquered on the cross, the light of life was snuffed out. In the same way, a couple of years ago at a, a Christmas Eve service, we lit all the candles and then blew them out and shut all the lights off in the room. And there is that sense that the light was gone. And for three days, the light stayed gone. And the people of God wondered, is this it? Is it over? Is there no hope? And then like one of those, you know those birthday candles that you blow out? And then they like sparkle a little bit and they pop back up? 
and they make your like grandparents really mad because they don't understand what's going on. So the light of life then flickers back three days later, bursting out of the grave. The prince of peace now rules and reigns, ascended on high. And he sends the Holy Spirit. And that light and that fire, just as it did in Acts 2 at Pentecost, now burns inside. Exposing the reality of who we are, exposing the reality of the broken world that we live in, and exposing that there is hope. Saying past tense, hope has come. There is no more gloom for those who are in Christ. So I was thinking of this image as we close up talking about the kingdom of light. Uh, also, a little bit in the past from uh, here in Isaiah 9, Israel is at war with Syria. And Elisha, the prophet, was outed as being one who was helping the Israelites and not the Syrians. And the king of Syria gets super mad, and he sends a bunch of this giant army and horses and chariots and encircles the city that Elisha lives in. And Elisha's servant wakes up early one morning, and he like goes out to get the paper on the front stoop, and he drops the paper real quick and gasps because he sees this army that is circling him. And he runs back in and tells Elisha what's going on. Elisha comes back out and points, and Elisha's totally unfazed. And they're like, Elisha, how are you so cool right now? And Elisha goes, there is more with us than with them. And Elisha's servant is like, what are you talking about? There's like a billion of them circling us, and it's just the two of us. And then Elisha prays and says, Lord, will you show them? And then in the mountains, these chariots of fire and these armies of angels begin to pop up and appear all around him. Numbering many, uh, numbering many more even than are there physically. There are more with them. There are more with us than there are with them. Elisha was able to see with a new spiritual vision what was actually going on in the world. And the nature of joy that begins to come out of us, this, this candle that we just lit is the joy candle. And you see this joy imagery all the way through. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. So there's some connection between when light shines, joy comes. What is that connection? There could be multiple things, but here's one. If our God reigns, though mostly invisible right now, the Holy Spirit slowly but truly begins more and more to convince our hearts that those armies are not bigger than my God's army. That those problems in my heart are not bigger than the grace of Jesus. That those ways that I have failed and struggled and continue to fail and struggle are not big enough to keep me away from the Lord because the light of the world was snuffed out so that I could be lit up. And walking more and more in that reality, we begin to get those tastes, both inside of us and outside in the world, when we see the ways that goodness is winning, when we see the ways that, that 
Christ across the globe is impacting the world, both in people that are being converted and in lives and systems and cities that are being changed and shaped by the gospel. And that's the opportunity that's always before us. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The reality that those things are true begins to settle our hearts and bring a joy that nothing can change. The difference between joy and happiness. Joy is rooted in something that is true. Happiness is a feeling that goes up and down. What are you rooting your joy in? And in what ways is that joy set in the future in a way that it cannot be shaken? So we're doing these four podcasts. I'll close with this. Uh, We've produced these four podcasts where we've just asked uh, folks from our congregation to tell their stories of how they're living in this tension of I still live in darkness, but I trust that light is coming and that light has already come. And that one day the glory of the Lord will come back in its fullness and light up this world with no need for sun or moon. And uh, so the one that's going to drop this week is Claire Emmerich, who's a, a licensed mental health counselor. And she just said this really helpful little tidbit. She said a lot that was very helpful. This one little thing just erupted uh, off the page as she was saying this. She said, joy is a helpful tool in counseling when you're facing trauma. And then she went on to say that part of what she loves to do is cultivate a space that is comfortable and fun and winsome and set apart so that when you walk into it, you, you feel something different. You feel like something is new and fresh in a way that the world that I'm walking out of and even the trauma that I am experiencing in my heart and in my life, that I'm sensing that there is something more than that. And so um, here's the little tidbit, and you got to go look for, you got to go listen to the podcast to know what she means. She says, Elvis absorbs trauma. So go figure out, go listen to the podcast. This is your scavenger hunt for the week. Figure out what Elvis absorbs trauma is. But here's the question. I think in, in Christian circles, we can get into the idea that somehow being joyful is maybe against what Jesus would have us to do because he calls us to pick up our cross, because he calls us to, to carry consistently the suffering that in the same way we're filling up what was even lacking in Christ's affliction. But if the light of the world, past tense, has come and there is a joyful future in our Uh, in our future and coming into our present, then what are those places that you are bringing some of that future joy into the now and not feeling guilty about it? Like, what do you love? What do you love to do? Are you making space for that, recognizing that there is a future that, that I will only always enjoy? And are there places now where you can settle your own heart and say, whatever else is going on in my life, there is this little taste of the future, this little appetizer of the feast that's to come. I would just encourage you moving into this week, as you may light the joy candle in your own homes this week, consider what brings you joy. Don't feel bad about chasing after that, but recognize that whatever that thing is, is only a foretaste of ultimately the longing that is in your heart that only Jesus can totally fulfill and satisfy. Let's pray.
So, light of the world, we ask that you would do the work that we can't do. In the same way that you conquered our sin and death in a way that we couldn't do it, so would you now continue to conquer our own sin and the places of death in our lives. Spirit, I pray that you'd break through in all of those callous places in our hearts. I pray that your light would shine. In all of those places where we've lost hope, I pray that your light would shine. In all of those places where we wish we were more than we are, I pray that your light would shine. For those today in this room who are not even sure about who you are, I pray that your light would shine in such a way that you would communicate and reveal who you really are. Not who we assume you are, but who you are. And the truth is that we will never be lacking for joy and surprise when we really see just how gracious a God you are. We're constantly surprised because we just, we keep waiting for the penny to drop. One of these days, I'm going to screw up so bad, you're just going to leave. We fear that in all our relationships. Thank you that your covenant with us does not depend on us. Settle and satisfy our hearts. Break into all those places that we could walk in your light as you were in the light. We pray this in Christ.